on the very idea, a philosophy podcast. Hello, everyone. Today is a brisk January day. One of the last couple before I um, have to go back to school. Though I am anticipating school possibly being cancelled again due to the surge of the coronavirus in uh, Japan. They cancelled from the beginning of March until the beginning of June last year, 2020. So maybe they'll uh, do it um, again. Things are about to get dangerous, I think, here. But uh, they've already been quite dangerous in most other countries compared to here. So um, I guess I should be grateful. Yes. Um, Okay, we have a quote. Sorry, a game. We are going to play a game. I will say a philosopher's uh, quote, and you tell me who said it. I'll give you uh, five seconds. You got that? Okay, here we go. The quote. To him who looks on the world reductively, the world looks reductively back. This appears to be a shot at uh, positivism, this quote here. And seems to hold a lot of uh, truth. You know, people's phenomenology tends to fit the theory through which they explain what they seek to describe. Mm. You know, the descriptive becomes the theoretical. It, uh, sorry, the theoretical influences the descriptive. Uh, It certainly seems that way sometimes. Anyway, let's uh, quote that one more time. To him who looks on the world reductively... The world looks reductively back. Okay. A few more hints. This guy teaches at the uh, University of uh, Pittsburgh. He graduated from Princeton. And he was one of the few students who uh, Richard Rorty, the great American pragmatist, supervised. His other supervisor was the uh, possible world's enthusiast, David Lewis. And uh, the man of the quote, he has an impressive beard. Okay. Is that enough hints? Okay. Let me count down. Five, four, three, two, one. Okay. That quote is from none other than Robert Brandom. Uh, Can you imagine having uh, Richard Rorty and uh, David Lewis as your supervisors? That's crazy. It's a dream team, or a nightmare team, if you're easily intimidated by intelligence, and I kind of am. And uh, Robert Brandom, uh, he does have this uh, this beautiful, impressive beard. It's got uh, Abrahamic-like vertical white and black streaks. Um, And uh, there's this really incredible review of him on Rate My Professors regarding his uh, beard. Uh, The review, it's something like, uh, this guy's a wonderful professor, extremely knowledgeable, you should take his course. But I swear if you look under his beard, you'll find the cord that he plugs into the wall before he goes to bed at night. He can't be human. Yeah. Smarmy. Yeah, rate my professors. That's uh, the Yelp of academia. Anyway, on to the main of the episode. start uh, here with a uh, really basic question. How do we see? How do we see things in the uh, world? 
things, you know, objects. And not just tattered or wise work. I imagine that's a question for um, optical science, I'm assuming here, that terms a thing. Perhaps optometry, I should say. Is that the right word? Uh, but how do we, when we see, take the object that we are looking at in the world and uh, put that in our heads or minds? How do we put that in our minds so that it is something that we can first say that we experience? An experience, you know, that's where it all starts. Then say we know we saw it, uh, it becomes an epistemically valid object, uh, then we can think of that as knowledge in a proposition form and something we can think about and put in inferential relations with other things. So how does this all happen? Is there a timeline on all these things? Uh, or do they happen simultaneously when we open our eyes and see an object? Do we uh, first see a blur of colors, then try to make sense of that blur as an object? Do we cut objects out of the blurs of color that we uh, see? When do we take the 3D shapes of things, convert them to 2D when we see them as visual images, and then uh, you know reconfigure them? in our brain as 3D, allowing us to uh, flip and rotate them in our heads. Yeah, a lot of work going on there. How many individual processes is this? Or is it an artificial move to try to divide these things into uh, distinct processes? After all, the uh, average person never studies these processes to be able to see things. Uh, we just seem to know how to um, do it and only really think about it when the brain and the eye are doing, you know, we only think what the brain and the eye are doing when we um, have a bandage over one eye and lose our sense of 3D or see a mirage when we are lost in the uh, desert as one often does. And when we, uh, or when we come to question the processes that uh, seem oh so natural and automatic. Now, these questions, uh, they represent perhaps the base of philosophy how does our mind via our eyes tell us about the real world not the mtv show but the thing that envelopes us all, all. yet the the thing that we are nevertheless kind of distanced from the, the real world reality realitos Rene Descartes told us that perhaps it is but the demon uh, tricking us. That is the distance between the object I see and the object that is in the world. Some thought physics could, you know, close the gap. That was the dream, the dream of the Enlightenment, uh, yeah, wasn't it? But uh, that seemed to add more to the confusion because it told us that the world we see and the uh, objective world of physics, eh, it's radically different. Physics has no distinguishing lines between objects, no colors, just atoms and waves the um, humble line the very humble line the distinguishing line gives us so much in our human ability to figure out the world and we never pay much respect to it um, but no lines and no contours and no shapes that we can distinguish just a massive atoms a big stew so how do we see the world and how do we view our thoughts about how our experiences match reality how does experience become something that we can call a knowledge, something that uh, we can say is justified, true belief? Perhaps that's, uh, you know, getting a bit too linguistic at the moment, though, uh, because today I want to focus mostly on the eyes without getting too much 
caught up in the linguistic muddle of belief states and justified true belief, linguistic philosophy has this kind of way of sucking everything into its vortex and through though these questions relate to language in a way. I like the treat where sometimes we can shelve those concerns to focus solely on perception. And this is what is focused on in this talk that I look at today. I'm going to look at uh, P.F. Strassen's Perception and Its Objects, which uh, was supposed to be a Royal Institute of Philosophy annual lecture in 1979, but was never given as Strassen, he had a car accident that prevented his, him from delivering the talk. Many philosophers have looked at the problem of perception. It's kind of seen as one of the core problems of all that philosophy problematizes. Bertrand Russell, influenced uh, by a long line of British empiricists, called this type of knowledge gained by opening our eyes and gazing around as being of the category of knowledge known as knowledge by acquaintance. He built his work in, on the idea that this knowledge from perception was to be a form of acquaintance that was immediate and unquestionable, linking uh, one with uh, such things as abstract properties and momentary sensory items passing through one's mind. You can be acquainted with the abstract property of redness as well as with a specific patch of redness briefly in your visual field. This immediate and unquestionable nature of... Um, what the census delivered to us is an idea with a long history in British philosophy, starting, you know, back with John Locke, going to, you know, Bertrand Russell, who I talked about, and uh, some of the other philosophers that we will be looking at uh, today, starting with P.F. Strassen. Well, P.F. Strassen. He looks at this issue by examining common sense, namely how the mature person looks at the world. Strassen wants to defend what he calls common sense realism, which he says is a real realism to, I guess, differentiate it from all the other contenders to realism, which he will explore in his essay. Uh, these other contenders include a theoretically obese realism put forward by British philosopher A.J. Eyre, he, who I mentioned in an earlier episode, almost got into a fight with uh, Mike Tyson. Uh, another theory he's going to look at is naive realism. And uh, the third theory he'll look at is scientific realism, a theory championed by the Australian philosopher J.L. Mackey, who I looked at in a previous episode as the author of the Air Theory Critique of Morality. So these three contenders uh, are ones that Strassen will pick and prune at. Okay, so let's begin looking at how... Uh, Strassen's realism distinguishes itself from Ayer's, A.J. Ayer's realism. Ayer sees his realist account as having the character of a theory with respect to the immediate data of perception. It's this theory word, this theory aspect that really gets at Strassen. But first, so the game is to describe how the average adult views the world. Common sense perception. And it's important to note that this common sense perception has to be acquired, not given to us at birth in virtue of being human, according to A.J. Eyre. In uh, the words of Strassen on Eyre's theory, Eyre insists, as uh, I have remarked, that his own account 
of a possible line of development or construction of the common sense view is not intended as a speculative contribution to the theory of infant learning. It is intended rather as an analysis of the nature of mature or adult perceptual experience. An analysis designed to show just how certain features of mature, sensible experience vindicate or sustain the common sense view, which is embodied or reflected in mature perceptual judgments. So we are only looking at the adults here. Yeah? That's what uh, Strauss is saying, but yeah. and not how a child first learns to grasp the perceptual world. So let's um, break it down in a way that Air uh, might understand it. But l allow me some plenty of liberties here because I'm just going to try to say this quite casually, just to get at the nature of the problem and how air might see things. Okay, so what do we do? What do we begin with? We have the object in the world. Bam. Just a thing. Next, we got our eyes. That's where we, uh, ourselves, that's where we get involved. What do um, these uh, eyes do when uh, looking? They get data sent from the object via light shining off it into our retina, and bam, we got uh, a sense experience. But these eyes don't work on their own in conjunction with the item in the world and that uh, sweet, sweet light. The eyes, they're dead unless they are hooked up uh, to a cognitive apparatus in the brain. This uh, function of uh, cognition allows the eyes to see. Then there is a second cognitive apparatus that allows us to interpret what we see and form what we might call a perceptual judgment. Hmm? So we got an object, object being seen, that is in the sense experience, and more cognitive glib lab going on that allows experience itself to be interpreted into something we can understand as perceptual judgments. And uh, you might think, hey, why should why say stuff like cognitive glib lab? Yeah, it's part laziness on, on my part, but it, I also think it's uh, kind of helpful sometimes. So we know something is going on, something cognitive. We, and many of us know, are not confident about what it is, so talking about it at the beginning may, may be better to use a nonsensical name like glibglab than one with connotations. And, you know, all terms have connotations. Words are messy and misleading, and the world of cognition is messy and mysterious, so a little breathing room at the outset, you know. I think might be a good thing. And then Aaron Strauss and Mackie can come up and use their big brains to fill in a what uh, cognitive glib glab could mean. Okay, now, getting back to a more stricter interpretation of air. Air says that our normal perceptual judgments always go beyond the sensible experience, which gives rise to them. And for those judgments, uh, they carry implications which would not be carried out by any strict account of that experience. That seems fair. It seems that there's some part of our brain involved from the get-go carving out the world into objects, bringing in the lines and contours, bringing the stew into cognitively decipherable parts. So basically, air says that sensible experience provides the data, sense data, the sense data, if you will. Some of you know that word and the problems with it, but uh, what do we do with this data? As I said, there's a jump from perceptual experience to perceptual judgment. And these perceptual judgments carry implications for air, not carried by strict account of the sensible experience itself that gives rise to the judgments. So air is saying we add a lot of stuff to a more simple perceptual experience immediately. Our experiences become judgments right away. You know, like I said, draw on the lines, draw on the contours, and maybe I'm putting too much into this here. But if he is transitioning from experience to judgments, it seems like I think he is saying that almost immediately we add a normative dimension. Because judgment, you know, is categorically normative. 
um, we're adding a normative process. And this might be taking it too far, but he might be saying our perception is normative from the get-go, or almost from the get-go. Our ordinary perceptual judgments have the character of interpretations, and well, you know, interpretations is their word, but interpretations, they always try to make things right or wrong, so they're normative. Uh, but maybe that's me adding a bit of Robert Brandom's pragmatism slant to things here. As uh, Robert Brandom and the pragmatists, they usually try to make epistemology normative as opposed to merely descriptive from the get-go. But, and, you know, and Eyre was no pragmatist, but he does seem to be saying there's something normative here when you're saying you're making a judgment. So, anyway, in summary, A.J. Eyre believes that we have sense experience and that all adults, humans of a certain base intelligence develop a somewhat common theory to make sense of their perceptual experience and turn them into the propositional perceptual judgments that allow us to say or think or recognize silently or loudly that this apple is red. So we're not simply seeing something as red, yeah? Um, delivered from the world into our eyes, but we are judging the apple to be red. You know, we're not just simply seeing it, we're judging it to be red. <laughs> a lot about A.J. Eyre. Now, on this common sense theory of perceptual judgments, A.J. Eyre and Strassen both agree that perceptual judgments as opposed to perceptual experiences embody or reflect a certain view of the world as containing objects variously propertied, located in a common space, and continuing in their existence independently of um, our interrupted and relatively fleeting perceptions of them. You know, you know the, the you know, table is still there, but we stop looking at it. Yeah, I've always kind of interested in how philosophers think about these issues. Uh, this is kind of armchair philosophy at its finest because philosophers, you know, they don't have to do much lab research to think about what the average person is doing when we perceive something or what the average person thinks they are doing when they are perceiving an object in the world. They can kind of just sit back and, you know, think about it. But uh, how do I know <clears throat> when I've got the... Um, Right answer, yeah. How do I develop a theory in the first place? What are people like Strassen and Eyre doing here? Are they thinking primarily of their own cases of perception? In a sense, that's okay, because they are coming up with accounts of how a mature person perceives reality, and they themselves are mature. Um, are they staring at a chair across the room and uh, focusing really hard on how they see the chair? Uh, I kind of do that in my moments, yeah. Um, are they uh, appealing to intuitions, to uh, what answer feels the uh, most right? Ah, are they just simply uh, trying to find the most explanatorily uh, useful model? But sometimes what is explanatorily useful can be quite uh, counterintuitive, yeah? And what is explanatorily useful needn't necessarily be true. There's no um, necessary uh, reason to think that the three must uh, match. So what do we do when we philosophize about our experience? You know, what do, what do, what do you do? What do you do? Um, I'm sure philosophers prize themselves in their methodology, but at the end of the day, I think a lot of the theories are inspired more by, you know, intuition than uh, anything else. Experience is so subjective in these cases and uh, so intimate, personal. It's kind of hard to get our right, right distance from our experiences of perception to use them independently as a means to judge whether our theories about them are accurate enough. 
they are such a basic part of our being that it's very hard to attain any critical distance for objective uh, assessment. It's funny that the things most uh, closely and intimate to us are the things that we you know, so hard to get a grasp of. What do you think about, uh, what do you think about when you think about how you perceive? Do you focus hard on the table? And not just hard, but really, really hard? Uh, the absurdity of philosophy. All right. Anyway, let's stop there. And uh, next time, we'll get into uh, P.F. Strassen's criticism of A.J. Ayer's theory of the average person's perceptions. Strassen mostly agrees with Ayer, except for one notable and clarifying distinction. Thank you for listening. On the very idea a philosophy podcast.